This morning we will see the only authorized picture of Jesus that has been given to us. This is the picture that you see on the table set before you. This is the picture of Jesus that God wanted to be embedded in your mind. Bread and wine in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Today we are interrupting our normal pattern of verse-by-verse exposition. If you've never been with us before, our normal pattern is to preach consecutively through New Testament books in our morning service and through Old Testament books in our evening service. We'll do that tonight as we continue in our study of the book of Joshua in Joshua chapter 6 as we're looking at the battle of Jericho. But today we're stepping aside from our exposition of 1 Peter to focus on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper before we partake. And we're examining a very familiar text. I hope you have your Bible open to Matthew 26. We'll be examining it in some detail. The setting of our text, Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. On Sunday of Passion Week or Holy Week, Jesus entered the city to triumphal shouts and broad acclamation. On Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of the same week, Jesus taught in the temple, predicted its destruction. And now it's Thursday in our text, late afternoon. Jesus comes to a private home and to an upstairs dining room that's been carefully prepared for Passover by Peter and John. Thirteen men file into the room, Jesus and his twelve disciples. And as they enter the candlelit room, they see three couches arranged in a horseshoe around the table. They recline, as was customary, and they begin to eat the Passover meal. But Jesus has more on his mind than just celebrating Passover. In this evening, in fact, in our text, Jesus will formally declare the old covenant to be done and the new covenant inaugurated and begun. And he will institute signs that show just that. Now think about the old covenant, the old covenant meal that Jesus and his disciples partake of. What was Passover celebrating? Well, God delivering his people from bondage. In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord said of Passover, It's a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. In the new covenant... What is the Lord's Supper celebrating? Nothing less than the death of Jesus, our sacrificial Passover lamb, who is delivering his people from the bondage and tyranny of sin. Jesus and his disciples are sharing Passover. And at this point, in fact, look at your text very carefully. Matthew 26, look at verse 26. You can see the moment. You could write it down and say it happened at 6.29 p.m., It was that moment that Passover passes into the Lord's Supper. It was while they were eating the old covenant meal that Jesus institutes the new covenant meal. You see this seamless transition, old covenant signs segueing into new covenant signs. A few more hours and the old symbol of Passover being bloody will have served its purpose forever having reached its fulfillment in the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary. It was time, therefore, that a new, unbloody symbol replaced the old. Both signs, Passover and Lord's Supper, point to Jesus, the only all-sufficient sacrifice for his people. Passover for 
1,400 years had pointed forward to the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus, who would be the Lamb of God. And now the Lord's Supper that Jesus institutes this night will forever point backwards to Jesus' finished work. Look at our text. Jesus performs in verse 26 and 27 what we call the sacramental actions. He takes bread. In just a few minutes, Pastor Dodds will do this all over again. And as he does so, you will see a, a glorious picture, a template of what Jesus actually did that night. Jesus, in the sacramental actions, takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to his disciples, speaks the words of explanation, and then exhortation. Take, eat, this is my body. He then takes the cup, gives thanks, gives it to the disciples, speaks the words of explanation, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And this is a symbolic rehearsal of the Savior's imminent death that's now just hours away. And was done with the bread and wine broken and poured out, so too would be soon done to Jesus' body and blood. Jesus is making it very clear when he speaks of the broken bread as my body. Look at verse 26. When he speaks of the bread as my body, that he's to be violently killed, torn. And by instituting the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is giving his church a parting gift, an authorized picture of him by which to remember it. Now today, I would ask you to reopen this text with me. You've probably heard this text a hundred times. If you're old, maybe 500, a thousand times. But I want to encourage you to hear it afresh and to be stirred as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and have that exact same sign and picture using the exact same words and actions that Jesus gave to his first disciples. Let's pray now and seek the Lord's help. Our Father, we are weak in faith. And we are curious about things that you tell us are secrets, and we neglect the things that you reveal to us in your word. So send now your Holy Spirit to come and strengthen us in our belief in and our understanding of your holy word. Enable us to shut out the distractions that the evil one brings before our eyes and ears, and enable us to deeply drink from your truth. We pray in the name of our only mediator, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to encourage you this morning to have your Bible open, not only at our text in Matthew 26, but we're going to peek at three principal Old Testament texts. Because if you don't understand that as Jesus is instituting the sacrament of the new covenant, and he's doing so drawing on these rich texts from the old covenant, you'll miss out on the weightiness. Those texts are Exodus 24, Jeremiah 31 that Pastor Dodds read in your hearing a minute ago, and Isaiah 53. When Jesus says these words, look at verse 28. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Every man in that room, his antenna shot up. They elbowed one another. Did he just say he's instituting the new covenant right now? These words don't just appear. They have a rich Old Testament background and context. Now, the first one I want you to look at, because I want you to see how deeply rooted the Lord's table is in the Old Testament. 
Keep one finger in your Bible at Matthew 26 and look back to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, this language of the blood of the covenant is deeply rooted in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, beginning in verse 4, we find out that the covenant of grace requires the shedding of blood, the blood of the covenant. Pick up the narrative in Exodus 24, verse 4. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So stare at those words in Exodus 24. Moses sends young Israelite men to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Half of the blood Moses sprinkled on the altar. The other half Moses sprinkled on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. What does the blood of the covenant do? We can't help but notice it does something to both parties of the covenant relationship. It's sprinkled on the altar representing the presence of God and on the people. And what the blood of the covenant does is establish or more technically reestablish or renew the covenant relationship between God and his children. But during the old covenant, the promise comes of a better covenant. A new covenant. Now in a little upper room in downtown Jerusalem on a Thursday night, Jesus is stating that the promised new covenant is here. What's he referring to? Look back at Jeremiah 31. You saw it a moment ago when Pastor Dodds read it to you. And not only do I want to try to help you understand what the people in the room heard that night, but I want you to understand something rich and practical from this day forward. What you should be thinking about every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I really appreciate new believers who haven't learned yet, oh, you're not supposed to ask those questions. You're just supposed to act like you know everything. Years ago when we were in Las Vegas, I had a a woman come to me who is a new convert. And she said, Carl, you know, the Lord's Supper is long. It's 10, 15 minutes And I'm looking around, people around me seem to be thinking about something. And I've asked people, what are you thinking about? And I'm getting different answers. Would you tell me, you always tell us to meditate on the new covenant. What is it that you're talking about? What should I be thinking about? Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31, and let me give you some instruction. These are the words, by the way, that the disciples, when Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, this would have immediately grabbed their attention. We read, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to look very carefully at the four benefits of the new covenant. This is something the Puritans would would teach their congregations. They would remind them of this every time they partook of the Lord's Supper. They would say, meditate on the benefits. Meditate on the benefits. There are four stated benefits of the new covenant. This is what should grab a hold of your mind. This is what you'd stir up your hearts into communion with God. Look at those four benefits of the new covenant. First of all, the law in their minds and written on their hearts. Where the Lord says, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. The first benefit of the new covenant is the law is internalized. Now God has stamped the moral law upon your heart so that it's inescapable. You can't go anywhere without this, this desire to obey God. The second benefit of the new covenant, God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, now you have relationship, a covenant relationship with God. That's the second benefit. The third benefit of the new covenant. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. The knowledge of God is one of the great benefits of the new covenant, the full knowledge of God's plan of salvation now that's been fulfilled in Jesus. And then the fourth benefit. Where the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This is the jewel in the crown of the new covenant. That great benefit of the forgiveness of sins. This is what you should be contemplating during the Lord's Supper. And every Israelite knew this. Every Israelite knew that this was what was going to come in the new covenant. And so when Jesus says in that upper room, this is my blood. They're thinking Exodus 24. Of the new covenant, they're thinking Jeremiah 31, and they're saying, is it now? Does he mean now he's inaugurating the new covenant? Yes, ever since that Thursday evening. That's the point of what you see before you. This is the meal of the new covenant. So look at the particulars of this new covenant meal. Look at Matthew 26, verse 26, and notice the bread. Jesus is ready now to institute the sacrament, and he speaks the words of institution. These words changed and heightened the meaning of the two elements of the meal, the bread and the wine, giving them surpassing significance. And so follow the sacramental actions. Jesus picks up the bread. Now, notice there's no sleight of hand. There are these men, his dearest friends, and they're watching closely. They're watching each action. Jesus picks up the bread. He gives thanks, which is staggering to me. He breaks the bread. He distributes it to his disciples and then says, take and eat. This is my body. So think about those sacramental actions. Since it was Passover, Jesus couldn't have even handled leavened bread. So he has a sheet of unleavened bread to begin with. Why did he take bread rather than any other element? Well, because bread was a type of Christ. Bread sustains and satisfies the hungry. So just so Jesus satisfies, sustains, and nourishes. Do you remember how Jesus characterized himself in John 6? I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven 
that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. This bread then is broken. Look at verse 26. Jesus takes in his very own hands and he begins to tear the bread, to break it. This was a picture, of course, of the torment, the suffering, the death of Christ, of him being broken. Of course, that breaking of Jesus is not on account of anything he did, but the other text from the Old Testament that would immediately flood through the minds of the disciples, he was wounded for our transgressions. Remember, every time you see Pastor Dodge or Pastor King or Pastor Anderson or myself, tear that bread. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was broken for your harshness and cursing. He was broken for your pettiness and lies and gossip. He was broken for your discontentment and worry and fear and rebellion. He was broken for your worldliness and hatred, your adultery and profaneness. This, of course, would be a lingering, painful death, ending in the agony of asphyxiation. It was a shameful death when Jesus was hung between two thieves. It was a cursed death, both prophesied in Deuteronomy 21 and stated as such by Galatians 3 and Paul when he said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The breaking of bread, this simple action was so significant and such a vivid summary of Jesus' death that the early church sometimes called the whole Lord's Supper, as they do in Acts 2, the breaking of bread. And then notice what Jesus does, something stunning. It's incredible. He gives thanks. Keep one finger here. Now, I want you to see this with your own eyes. Look back to Luke 22. In Luke 22, and every time I read this, I'm I'm staggered. My breath is taken away again. After Jesus has taken the bread, has torn it with his hands, and then we read in verse 17 and verse 19 of Luke 22, then Jesus took the cup and gave thanks Verse 19, he took the bread and he gave thanks. Hours before his own death, Jesus expresses gratitude to the Father. The Greek word that's used here for the giving of thanks is the word Eucharist. Some Christians call this meal the Eucharist, and by saying this, they're simply emphasizing the element of gratitude. But notice who it is that's thankful. Look at Luke 22 and marvel. Verse 17 and 19. It's Jesus. In a few hours, his own body would be torn, and he would be dripping with blood and would have puncture wounds all over his head and the rest of his body. His back would be torn open after having been beaten and whipped. And he's thanking the Father that he gets to be the sacrifice for sinners. In that same parallel, look at Luke 22, verse 19. Jesus commands remembrance. He says, he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this reminds us that at this meal, 
we are to remember. Our memories are such fleeting things. And so we need this reminder that we are at this meal every time we take it. We're to remember the person and work of Jesus. We're to remember his person, that he's fully God and fully man. We're to remember his work, that he was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, that he died a, a substitutionary death, and that he would raise triumphantly. You're to remember him as the object of your faith, as the Lord of your conduct, as the source of your hope, as your representative and mediator. And by commanding us to remember, we should understand that we're in constant danger of forgetting Christ. There are specific things in the Bible, not many, that we're commanded to remember. For example, the only one of the Ten Commandments that begins with the word remember is the fourth commandment, the commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why? Because every seven days we're in danger of forgetting that. Forget, forgetting that the whole day belongs to the Lord. Every time we take this sacrament, we are in danger of forgetting who the object of our faith is. This sacrament is meant to graciously assault our fickle memories. But then notice back in our text in Matthew 26, here's the heart of the sacrament. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed, here it comes, for many, in the place of many. When we come to the Lord's table, we're to focus on the substitutionary character of the Lord Jesus' death. We only have eternal life and a right standing with the Holy God because a substitute has stood in our place and has earned that. Think of that other <clears throat> Old Testament text, which the disciples, these thoughts and Ideas and connections will be pouring into their minds right now when Jesus said, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. You remember that Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, pounded away at the substitutionary nature of the servant. He has borne our griefs and sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sin of many. Look at the wine in Matthew 26, verses 27 and following. Jesus tells us that the wine in the cup is the symbol of his shed blood. He's just about in a few hours, he's about to be punctured, and the blood will flow freely from the puncture wounds on his forehead, from the scars on his back, from the nails in his hands and his ankles. Blood will pour out from him. The wine in the cup that you will partake in a moment is the symbol of that shed blood. The term, by the way, when Jesus uses it, the body and the blood, this occurs frequently together in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and in Hebrews. And when they do so, using that language, the body and the blood, it's always in the context of sacrifice. It's sacrificial terminology, which makes sense because it's the very nature of a sacrifice to separate the blood from the body. When a sacrifice is offered, blood is poured out, which Jesus signified by pouring out the cup for his disciples. 
Even before he shed his blood on the cross for our sins, he gave us the sacrament that shows this sacrifice. Now, why these elements? I've been in places before where people say, well, we're going to use seven up and crackers. Why this element, bread and wine? Well, first of all, to remind us of the absolute corporeal or physical nature of Jesus, that it's a symbol of Jesus' real humanity. And then there's a second reason why bread and wine, because this shows us how God sanctifies even the most mundane facets of our life. He takes something that you do every day, three, four, five times a day. You eat and drink. And Jesus takes this action that you engage in, and he sanctifies it. But the bottom line reason why bread and wine is because these two things, even if you think, I could be more creative, I could come up with a symbol that that better symbolizes the body and the blood of Christ. No. This is given by divine wisdom. The bread best symbolizes the body of Christ. Bread sustains us. Without it, we'll starve. Without partaking of Christ, we'll die in our sins. And wine symbolizing the blood of Christ. Without Christ's blood shed for us, we have no remission of sins. Now, speaking of remission, look carefully at verse 28. When Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Remission means to dismiss, release, forgive. This remission or forgiveness can only happen when blood is shed. Remember those words of Hebrews 9.22 that are like a large roadside blinking in front of us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. This is what we confess as a core article of our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. How was that forgiveness purchased? By the shed blood of Jesus. And listen carefully to what we mean. Look carefully at verse 28. Jesus teaches that when he saves a man, he gives that person a full pardon of sins. Slate wiped clean. Sins remitted and pardoned. This means all sins. Original sin. Actual sin. Sins of omission. Sins of commission. Secret sins. Open sins. Sins of word. Sins of thought. Sins of deed. Sins past present, and future. What would happen if you came to Judgment Day and stood before God with one sin not forgiven and paid for? One sin would consign a soul to hell forever. This is why we have such a conflict with Rome and their doctrine of purgatory, where men are told they they must, after death, go to purgatory to pay for some of their own sins it's damnable and blasphemous you can't pay off the debt of sin one sin in a hundred or a thousand years such an idea demeans the work of christ doesn't romans 8 1 flatly state there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus my friends as you look at those words of verse 28 That last little clause hanging off the end of verse 28, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, you should be ready to dance and shout. 
that Jesus has purchased the release, the pardon of every single one of your hundreds of sin per day, thousands of sin per week, hundreds of thousands of sin per year. Jesus has remitted them. He has pardoned them. This is why John can powerfully affirm in 1 John 1, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Forgiveness of sins that are past, by the way, is a sure pledge that future sins shall not have a condemning power. Forgiven Christians, they may receive the fatherly chastisement of God, but they will never again receive his penal condemnation. Who is this blood shed for? Look at Matthew 26, 28. Jesus quantifies the scope of his death. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed. Here it comes. Look carefully. For many. This is only the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before in Isaiah 53. When Isaiah prophesied, the suffering servant who comes shall justify many. Isaiah repeated, the suffering servant shall bear the sin of many. Isaiah's prophetic words and now Jesus' words in verse 28 are making a careful distinction. Look carefully at those words. When Jesus says, the blood of the new covenant is shed for many, this is the truth of particular redemption or definite atonement. This is taught by Jesus when he says in Matthew 20, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is taught by Jesus in John 17, 9 in the high priestly prayer. When he says, I pray for them, I don't pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you have given me, the many. This is taught by Paul in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for who? Her. It's taught by Jesus in John 10 when he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? The sheep. And then, by the way, he turns and points at the Pharisees and says, you're not of my sheep. I'm not laying down my life for you. But even though Jesus is telling his disciples around the table that his atoning work on the next day will have a definite object, the elect. Those marked out by the Father from before the foundation of the earth. The number of the elect is not a few. It's many. Look at Jesus' words here when he quantifies it in verse 28. He doesn't say the number of the elect can fit in the back of a VW bus. It's many. This is why John will tell us later in Revelation 7, the number of the elect and atoned for in heaven is a great number which no man could number from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. As we begin to move towards the table now, let me make a few applications. First of all, when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, you see it right here in our text. This is the moment when the old covenant segues into the new. When Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, this means an end to all the trappings of the old covenant. The ceremonial law, the dietary laws, the sacrificial system, the temple, the holy of holies, the altars, the priesthood. It's the end of all those rituals that had been prophetically pointing to Christ. When we were in Las Vegas, we had a, a guy who 
called up and pestered me every week for a couple of months and said, I have a ministry. I come and, and I do the Passover service for your people and it'll be really meaningful for them. I want you to come. And by the way, here's my fee for doing that. And he had somehow gotten hold of the phone number of one of the members of my congregation. And so this guy started calling me, Carl, we need to come and have this guy. And his fee's only a few thousand dollars and it'll be really good. And I said, no, the old covenant is done. We celebrate the new Passover every time we celebrate the Lord's table. We are not old covenant believers. We revel in what Jesus has replaced the Passover with, the bread and wine of the Lord's table. And so what you see here, what you will partake, has shooed away the trappings of the old covenant. Another application. I would plead with you. Don't lose sight of Jesus in this passage. Between the issues of the sacrament and the issues of sovereignty and responsibility, far too many lose their way and they don't rivet their gaze on Jesus. As you see these elements, the bread and the wine, here's what should fill your mind. His humanity. That he eats and drinks and speaks and loves and serves in the flesh. His suffering. You'll see the bread broken, the wine poured out. They symbolize and emphasize his profound suffering. His willingness. Jesus went to the cross, remember, giving thanks. He didn't go under compulsion or grudgingly. He didn't have to be dragged. He went with purpose and desire and determination. He knew all that lay before him, and he gave himself anyway. Don't lose sight of Jesus in the sacrament. This was the problem with the church in Corinth. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that they didn't discern the Lord's body in the sacrament. Your calling as you come to this meal is to be fixated on Jesus and to discern the Lord's body. But I want to point out to you by way of application a day that's coming. There's a next time when Jesus will celebrate a celebratory meal with his people. Look at verse 29 in our text. Jesus says, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. <clears throat> Jesus is communicating that this <clears throat> corporate meal is a foretaste. And a promise of a, a greater gathering when he will sit with all his people in the glorious surroundings of heaven. Jesus puts himself under an oath of self-denial that means he will never again take an earthly Passover. By the way, if Jesus will never take another Passover, we're certainly not going to here. And so if they're thinking clearly, the disciples are meant to understand that Jesus will not be there next year to do this. Now, there's a potential textual problem, so let me just answer this before you ask me this at the back door. Well, Carl, didn't Jesus eat again with his disciples? Yes, a couple of times. We read in Luke 24 that he ate with Cleopas and another disciple. We read again in Luke 24 that he ate fish and honey with his disciples after the resurrection. But Jesus is saying he'll not eat a sacramental meal, Passover, with the disciples until the consummation of all things. Jesus is doing more here than making a prophecy. He's making a statement about the continuing validity of Passover. 
There is no more Passover on God's calendar. The next great feast will be at the consummation. Their communion with Jesus and his followers will be renewed. This communion that you see in verse 29 of your text will be perfect. No distractions, no darkness in the understanding, no error in judgment, no guilt in the conscience, no sin in the heart. This communion will be heightened by the presence and the fellowship of the whole redeemed church. Think of it. This morning you'll share communion with a few hundred people. But the next time Jesus celebrates communion, it will be with billions. This coming fellowship will only be for those who belong to the kingdom of God on earth. Only those who have fellowship with Jesus here will do so there in the marriage supper of the Lamb. This was a night that we read of in Matthew 26, a night of intense emotions and passions. Jesus' heart is swelling at the thought of time when he would share this new covenant meal with his beloved people. And his mind travels far beyond the sorrow and the pain and the death that is now looming. Even now as he's saying these words, the men who are coming to arrest him are leaving the station house and starting to make their way towards him. But Jesus is thinking of the glad reunion with his people. Look at verse 29. And listen to the tone of Jesus' words. He's thinking of that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. These anticipated joys are what sustained him over the next several hours. The anticipation of him celebrating the new covenant meal with all his elect people that he would purchase... That's what sustained him through the spittings and the beatings and the hammerings and the nails and the mocking. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 12, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy was set before him? The joy of sharing the consummation meal with you. Jesus longed for that great messianic banquet described in Revelation 19. We're told in Revelation 19, John says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters and the sound of thundering, saying, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. To her it's granted to be arrayed in fine linen, Clean and bright. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the, it's the looking for the expectation of that meal that will sustain Jesus through the horror of the next 18 hours. For the joy set before him, he would endure the cross, and despise the shame. We too should look forward to that ultimate meal. Every time we celebrate the Lord's table, as we will in a moment, we should eat it with an eye to that ultimate communion meal. This is why Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 11, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. 
this Passover meal. Catch it now. It's like the skilled art of a, of a movie maker. This Passover meal is like a video sequence where one image is slowly fading away. As you look, as you look at the first part of our text in verses 19 and following, that one image, the old covenant image of Passover, is slowly fading away. And then in the second part of our text, the new images is coming into focus and it's becoming very clear that's the new covenant. The old covenant feast is being taken out of view and the new covenant meal is coming clearly into the picture. This is the meal we're to partake. Let's pray. Our Father, as we now come to this table, your table, the table loaded with blessings and benefits of the new covenant, Enable us to come with unshakable faith in Jesus, in his death and his paper.